So tonight we are going to be looking at the book of Judges. We will be looking at Judges chapter 21, uh, verses 1 through 25, it's the entire chapter. And I will bring the text up on the screen. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mitzpah, no, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people of, uh, came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up to the assembly of the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mitzvah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives, for those who are left, since that we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them uh, any of our daughters for wives? And the people of Israel, uh, oh, no, there we go. And they said, uh, what, uh, what one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord at Mitzvah? And behold, no one come up, had come up to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For uh, when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. Uh, this is what you shall do. Every male and, and every woman that has lain with a male you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at, at the rock of Rimmon and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time. And they gave them uh, the women that whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead, but they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin, because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, and south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go, lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. Uh, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh. And go to the land of Benjamin, and when the fathers of their brother or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man uh, of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so, and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. 
Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This ends the reading of God's holy word. So one of the blessings of being alive today in our time today is uh, the, the conveniences of modern technology. And a lot of modern technology is focused on portable technology, uh, but we have to admit the wonder of the technological marvel called the Roomba. Now here's a machine that will literally wander around your house and clean your floors. Is there anything better than that? That's what it's designed to do. In fact, uh, my dad and my stepmom have a Roomba, and it is very cool. The concept is really, really neat. There's no way we could get one because my kids would, like, try to ride it. You know, <laughs> it just would not last a, a day in my house. But one day, uh, the, the Roomba was moving about my parents' house, as it normally does, and uh, in its cleaning work, it inadvertently ran over some fresh dog excrement. And not being designed to handle such things, it proceeded to wander around the house cleaning. Uh, the result was a horrifically smeared and smelly mess all over the floor uh, and when my parents got home. And uh, here was a machine that was supposed to make things cleaner and yet did the exact opposite. Well... That is, I cannot find a better description of Israel in these last few chapters, and especially tonight's. Israel has displayed, thus far, horrifically perverted hospitality in chapter 19. In last chapter, they displayed a noble commitment to do justice, but we also found out they overdid it just a bit when uh, not only did they defeat the Benjaminite warriors, but they went ahead and killed all their women and children and burned all their towns. And, uh, and, and now they try a form of restoration to fix the problem that they created. And the solutions they come up with are just, ab just an absolute mess. We see, as, we see this as Israel tries to provide hospitality, justice, and restoration. They are more like a Roomba on the fritz. And that is what sin does in our world. Sin takes the, our efforts at justice, in the, say the court system, and turns it into a place where innocents are condemned and, uh, and, and the guilty go free. A system where you, maybe, maybe in our system you can't really directly bribe judges, although certain, I'm sure that happens, uh, but, uh, but you certainly will have a better go in our legal system if you have a lot of money and really good lawyers. Sin can make a messy mockery of just about anything noble. And so, uh, again, we're going to take one final comprehensive look at the book of Judges next week, but tonight we're diving into this last chapter, and this last chapter is just, the, if I could sum it up in a word, it is frustrating. Frustrating. You just want to smack people <laughs> when you read Judges 21. And, and, and now one common issue we see that rises up, that, caught, that kind of at the center of these issues, is the taking of rash oaths of oaths that are taken suddenly, where people bind themselves to certain commitments that they're unwilling to break or unable to break. The, these rash oaths are really the driving force behind the narrative here. 
as the Israelites try to get around the vows that they made to God. And so tonight we're going to consider first the, the regretful zeal of the people of God. Then we will consider the twisted compassion of the people of God. And then finally, the author's final analysis of the situation in verse 25. And so first, in verses 1 through 12, we consider the regretful zeal of the people of God. And here is where we, uh, we, are, we are learning the cost of rash vows. At the opening of the chapter, we are given a, a flashback back at Mitzpah when Israel had gathered before they had fought the tribe of Benjamin. And they were so zealous in writing this abominable wrong uh, that they all took a vow that no one would give their daughter in marriage to a Benjaminite. In effect, they were cutting off their tri the tribe of Benjamin and treating them like Canaanites, which after, after what uh, the Gibeonites did, we say, well, okay, well, there's a, at least understandable, at least for the, the, the city of Gibeah, but perhaps maybe not for the whole, whole tribe. But then, then again, it's still muddy because the Benjaminite tribe rallied around the Gibeonites. And so to some degree, we, we understand the impulse here, especially in view of the horrible crime that, that was committed. But, you know, now hindsight is 2020. Cooler heads are starting to prevail amongst the crowd. And, and with a moment to think about what has happened, to, to consider the situation, Israel realizes the impact of what they have done. There were 12 tribes of Israel, or at least there used to be. Now it seems there's about to be 11 tribes. This 12-tribe structure of the people of God was definitive for them as a people. They couldn't imagine being an 11-tribe people. It's unthinkable, and so they bitterly wept before Yahweh and asked God how in the world that it is that they got to this point. How did it get so bad? Now, they asked the question, but one wonders if they would really receive the answer if God told them directly. Would they accept the reality that the people of God were dealing with the consequences of their own actions for the foolishness of their sin, for the effects of abandoning the word of God? Would they receive that word from the Lord? The issue here is a kind of godliness that is being presented that is only skin deep. A superficial holiness, a misguided holiness even. Superficial holiness that is beginning to show the lack of depth the further we get into the story. What came as silver linings in, in chapter 20 uh, on a very dark cloud becomes... Well, let's say that the shine on that silver is, 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 is coming off real fast, to mix metaphors. And, and so we are told that like Jephthah, Israel has made not one, but two rash vows. First, they, they, make, they make a rash vow to not give any daughters to the tribe of Benjamin in marriage. They're saying, we're, we're, we're going to cut them off, okay? Because that means they can't have, that, means that uh, they can't have kids because uh, we also killed all their women and children. So, so basically, we're, we're, we're sentencing, sentencing them to death. The second uh, oath is in verse 5 it, that we find out that they made an oath that anyone who didn't show up to fight against Benjamin would share the same fate as the Benjaminites. And so like Jephthah, they declare that they cannot break their vow, although the law does seem to provide a way not to break a vow, 
but to atone for breaking a rash vow. There, does, there are mechanisms in the law uh, through sacrifices and through repentance that presumably would allow them to uh, not follow through with a foolish oath that they have made, but they still, it's a great sin to make that oath and to, to break it, so they would still have to atone for it, but it's still there. The law is there, but they seem to have forgotten that or they don't know it. And so they come up with a solution. Hey, you know what? The folks over near Gilead, the Jabesh Gilead, they, they didn't show up. So we have a way to keep both the vows. Um, and, and so because we don't have to give any daughters and we get to destroy the people that didn't show up. Boom. Threading the needle. Right. There we go. All right. And uh, and so they put the city to the sword in uh, what we can call an unsanctioned holy war. But this war isn't holy. It's a pragmatic slaughter to uphold the foolish vows the leaders of Israel uh, um, have made, thinking that they're honoring God. But in the end, it is the daughters of Israel that weep. And so we're taught here as God's people looking at this story that, that we need to avoid having zeal without knowledge. Because we see this on display here. And that counsel comes from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10. In that chapter, the Apostle Paul laments the situation of his Jewish brothers who have a zeal for God, but not according to the true knowledge of the word. They think they're obeying God by denying Christ, by seeking to establish a righteousness of their own through obedience to the law, but they do not, in fact, understand the law. Paul says that in 1 Timothy. Or, and, to, but the, and neither do they submit to God's righteousness. In his commentary, Matthew Henry warns us that there may be overdoing with our well-doing. There may be overdoing with our well-doing. We may overdo it with the best of intentions. The, there may be a strict external adherence to the literal law but does it actually accord with the righteousness of God or the intent of the command itself? This was something that Jesus went after the Pharisees over and over again about, how their adherence to the tradition of the rabbis, which was given in order to keep the law, but to keep that tradition actually required to the violation of the law. And yet they said they were honoring God. That is what Israel is doing here with their vows. They think they are upholding righteousness by doing unrighteous things. And it only gets worse from here. You know, as a church, we have a wonderful book of church order, right? This guy right here, right? Love the book of church order. It's an incredibly helpful guide in how to actually govern the church at the local level, at the presbytery level, the denominational level, um, and even the first couple of chapters are just downright devotional in how they talk about the mission uh, and the nature of the church. But if our adherence to the BCO is done in such a way so that we ignore or violate the clear commands of God in Scripture, then we are committing a similar error that the Israelites do here. And that the Pharisees do in the New Testament. And so this invites us to carefully evaluate ourselves, especially the leaders in the church, 
into how into the vows that we make, the commitments we make, into how we follow even the BCO in accordance with the Word of God. Because if if we don't, we might find ourselves in a similar position. I mean, also just think about you know it, you know one of the famous example is you know World War II after it ends, examining German officers and 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 German soldiers who did terrible things, and what did they say? Just following orders. Just following orders. Are soldiers supposed to follow orders? Yeah. Yeah. Are they supposed to do what their superiors say? Yes. Does that mean you should go gas women and children and unarmed men? No. There is a point where, and we do when we talk about just war theory, when we do our study, the point where it is a responsibility for the individual soldier, for the individual, uh, um, for the uh, sailor for the for the marine for the airman to say no this is unethical I cannot do this it would violate my conscience it would violate moral ethics for me to do so um, and uh, uh, but uh, and so and so we have to uh, we have to make sure that we're not just following the letter of the tradition um, or the letter of these extra commands or vows or commitments that we've made we have to make sure we're honoring the word of God. Because if we don't, then we will find ourselves in a similar position to the Israelites here who go on from, from simply displaying regretful zeal, uh, but they go on to, dis, to showing the, a, a twisted sort of compassion, as we see in verses 13 through 24. Now, in saying that, I do not mean that all the compassion of the church or the people of God is twisted. That's not what I'm saying. Only we, what we do he, see here is a twisted form of compassion. And, and, and perhaps another way to say it is that there are, cer- there are serious problems with even misguided compassion. Israel does well here to proclaim peace to Benjamin. The 600 men at the Rock of Rimen are not a threat to the peace of God's people anymore. They don't, put, they don't pose any threat. The tribe of Benjamin has duly been punished, and then some. Israel has already given them 400 female captives as wives, but they're still shy about 200. Now, verse 15 is key here. It, say, it says that they had compassion on Benjamin because Yahweh had made a breach in the tribe of Israel. Now, it's unclear whether or not Israel is, is saying God was simply dispensing justice towards Benjamin and made the breach, or if they're kind of piously saying it's kind of God's fault <laughs> that we're dealing with this situation. It's not exactly clear. I don't really have confidence uh, that, Israel, that Israel is really uh, on, uh, on point here. Um, and, but how can they help Benjamin now? How can they give Benjamin the best chance of, sur- uh, of survival and even in it help them to thrive? Now, these are good questions. The problem is that in their compassion is misguided by their adherence to these rash and foolish vows, which force them to terrible answers. And so this, you know, it's like people can ask the right questions, um, but, uh, you know, back, back in when I was in seminary back in like 2006, there's this. There was this movement in the church called the Emergent Church. And it was this thing, it, fa- it fizzled out after a while, as many of these things do. Um, but they were just asking questions, just asking questions. What, I, what, what they ended up doing was liberalizing and, and departing from the faith, essentially. But, um, uh, but it was like, yes, it, it, but 
but the response was, okay, well, you're asking some good questions, but your answers are terrible, <laughs> right? It doesn't matter the answers you give to the questions. You can't just raise the questions. You need to answer them. You need to answer them from the word of God. And so, uh, and so you know, these are good questions, and uh, the people put their, th you know, thinking caps on, and they come up with another, uh, you know, brilliant idea. And they said, so, you know, um, you know, so we're, you know, we're out of cities of people who didn't show up for the battle. We only had one, and we already had, we already wiped them out and got all the, got all the women that we could out of there. Uh, so what are we going to do? And they got, so goes, aha, I got it. All right. Just, just hear me out. Okay. But we said we couldn't give our daughters. But what if we let the Benjaminites just take them? Right. Then no one's guilty of giving them and we, and we keep our vow and we don't get in trouble. There. Now you're using your noodle. Right. And guess what? There, there in Shiloh is a feast, a celebration dedicated to Yahweh. What better time to go snatch a bunch of these girls than, you know, when they're having a, a wonderful celebration at church? That's what God wants us to do. And when their fathers and brothers object to us, we'll just tell them to leave well enough alone because it just needs to be done and we can't break these vows. And what are they going to do about it anyway? They're not going to go up against us. And everyone thought this was a great way around the problem. One scholar wrote, he said, although it transgresses every standard of morality and decency, this rationalization satisfies the letter of the law. And 200 daughters were taken from Shiloh and were told that a fragile peace settled upon the land. But we don't get a happily ever after. All the reader gets is a sick feeling in the pit of his stomach. And what we see here is how misguided compassion results in perversions of justice. We have to be careful in our efforts as God's people that in our efforts to show compassion that we, are, we do not pervert the course of justice. Whatever compassion ought to be shown to the Benjaminites here certainly did not require the devastation of other Israelites and the kidnapping of more daughters of Israel. In a time where we have so many scandals that have come to light, even in the broader church, we would do well to not allow our compassion to steer us in the wrong direction. There is a, there is a lot of lessons to be learned, and that's one of them. For instance, no amount of compassion should allow us to permit anyone guilty of crimes against children to work in that area of the church. No amount of promises that it won't happen again and, genuine, and seemingly genuine sorrow over hard life experiences should lead us to not involve the authorities when the vulnerable have been harmed. No amount of tears and, and, and hardship should lead us to press an abused party to go back into a harmful situation when there is especially good reason to believe that the abuse will reoccur. And I will tell you that too many pastors, and I've seen it firsthand, that too many pastors have taken the tearful words of abusers at face value, and the vulnerable in the church suffer for it. 
But this also applies to current issues that we're dealing with, uh, such as homosexuality and transgenderism and the, and the broader culture and how the church is engaging with them. On the one hand, we have to avoid a hard reactionism that refuses to minister the gospel or to give biblical truth and love to those who are struggling with these issues. I mean, just get, for instance, you know, the, the, you had the you had the, the the Nashville shooting where you had a, a, a trans shooter who killed who killed three children and three adults uh, before she was gunned down by police and uh, taken out rightly so by the police, um, and uh, and so there were anonymous um, there were anonymous members of the church who gave money to pay for her funeral because the family of the shooter couldn't afford it. So the church paid, anonymous donors from the church paid for the funeral of the shooter. And they were criticized for it. Christians and pastors came out and said uh, that they were, they were wrong. How dare you? This, you're, just, you're just performing. You're just playing. You're just pretending. You're just trying to show people that you're better than you are. But I don't recall Christ saying that we are to hate those who hate us, to do nothing for our enemies who persecute us. He said to love our enemies, to do good to them, and to pray for them. Yet at the same time, it does actual harm to a person to affirm them in their delusion and confusion. We cannot call it compassion to take someone and, and to affirm them as a gender that they are not. That is not an act of compassion. It does actual harm to them. These people need to have the, the image of God reaffirmed to them. They need to have the power of redemption, forgiveness, and love held out to them. To have the truth and compassion and love of their creator and redeemer placed right before them. Who will do it if not the church? And so we cannot have, it's, we cannot as a church a misguided compassion say, oh yeah, that's fine, that's okay, that's good. We need to say, no, no, no. Here's the truth and reality, but uh, that you are made, you are, you have dignity, you are loved, and uh, you know. And I've even talked to the youth because we talked about these issues in, in the Sunday school for the youth. And one of the things I talked to them is, you need to know who you are, and you were, you are made. You know, talk depending on who I'm talking to, but you are a male made in the image of God, who's being redeemed after the image of Christ. That's who you are. That's your identity. And, uh, and, and all the individual things that make you, you, that's who you are. Your family, your experiences, all those things, that's who you are. And so we need to reaffirm those things. And uh, it is not helpful or compassionate to, to affirm lies. But we also need to, but when we speak the truth, we need to do it in love. And this brings us to the final analysis here in verse 25. And the, first, and the final analysis is, according to the author, we need a king. We need a king. We don't just need a king, though, we find out. We, we need the rule of the true king. For the fourth and final time in these chapters, we hear the refrain, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is, when there is no authoritative and the divine standard, then everyone makes their own standard to live by. 
I mean, think about this. Israel thinks they did good things in this chapter. They're patting themselves on the back and high fives all around because we did it. We figured out a way to keep our vows to the Lord. They think they threaded the needle of justice and compassion. But the writer knows better. And we know better. The writer knows that we need order, direction, governance, boundaries. We need a righteous king who would not have allowed this travesty of justice uh, to occur. We need a righteous king who would not have allowed the Benjaminites to, to have all been but wiped out in, in the first place and caused all these problems. Now, I'm keenly aware that as Americans this close to the 4th of July, we may bristle at the idea of saying we need a king. Right? But it's not the British King George that I'm, that, that, that I'm suggesting for us here. But the true king of the universe, who rules over us by a variety of means and ways. We may cry out in our American spirit, don't tread on me. But yet, on the, even the most ardent independent has particular standards and virtues that they believe are necessary for the proper ordering of society. The point here is simply that picking our own morality is not an option. It doesn't work. Relativism will not do. We cannot simply do what is right in our own eyes. But, uh, but we need a king. But we need more than just a king, as we come to find out. Because kings that the kings that come and Saul and David and Solomon, as, as bad and wonderful as they are, they are not uh, the answer, ultimately, we find out. But indeed, we need, uh, we need the rule of the true king. But even more, we need the cross of the king. We need the cross of the king. How does one fulfill the requirements, the divine requirements of justice and mercy? How can one be both true, absolutely truthful and loving? How can we be compassionate without overlooking Injustice. What we see when we go into the New Testament is that the cross is where the mercy and justice of God meet one another. It is in the death and resurrection of Christ that God satisfies justice for our crimes, for our sins, for our unrighteousness. It is in the death of Jesus that God shows us mercy by punishing his son in our place. And so as we look at the bleak landscape here in Judges, one that increasingly seems to resemble perhaps our own landscape today in our modern time, we need to see that we cannot follow the cultural trends wherever they will lead us. And neither can we just go dig down into our bunkers and hide away. But we must be led again and again to the cross of Jesus Christ. Let us not forget that all of this occurred uh, due not only to the horrific sin of, of Gilead, uh, of, of, um, but, but, or, or Gibeah, rather, but rather because, also because of the rash vows that were added and made at the peak of emotion. 
we need to be careful in the vows that we make to the Lord to be sure. We need to be careful about the commitments that we make before God because he holds us to them. We need to consider carefully the implications of the decisions we make in, in moments of high tension. And we must be sure to avoid twisting compassion that results into a form of injustice. But the solution cannot be doubling down into ourselves and our own wisdom. The only path is to turn to the true king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, to seek God, to know him in his word, to obey him by faith, and in the grace of the spirit, to honor him with our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even in the darkness of the book of Judges, that even as everything is just going crazy and the mechanisms of justice are, are just spreading injustice. And Lord, as we may even see that occur in our own time, in our own country, and in the world, that we know that we have yet a king in heaven, even Jesus Christ, who has come to the earth, who has established his throne by his own blood and, and, and resurrection and ascension, that king who is seated right now on the throne, who governs us and all the world, and who is leading us, protecting us, and guiding us all the way to the end until he brings the fullness of his kingdom into the world. And we, as we long for that day, Lord, as we look towards that day, we pray that we would lift our eyes to Jesus. And that, Lord, we would certainly avoid the, the, the sins and errors of Israel here. That we would avoid the rash vows and, and, and making these commitments that cause us to violate the more important and essential commands to love God and to love our neighbor. But that we would also, Lord, look to honor you in the ways that we show compassion the ways that we uphold justice. Help us to be a church that is faithful to the Great Commission in this way. Lord, may you be glorified in your people, glorified in your church. May you continue to reform your church in accordance with your holy and blessed word and according to the grace of your gospel in Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.